Welcome to the Painting Lines Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things tennis. Join Eric and Aiden in their discussion for updates on news and pop culture, and from hot takes to betting, they've got you covered. Ready? Set. Hey guys, welcome back to Painting Lines. Last week we had ATP Pro Alafia Ayani on the podcast. If you haven't checked it out, highly recommend you give it a listen. A lot of great insight there. And this week we're going to be discussing uh, how a championship career ends. So this was pretty interesting. I was watching a Djokovic-Federer rivalry documentary and in it, Djokovic had beat Federer in the 2012 French Open semifinal and the announcers said... None of us like to see a great champion on the way down. And then Jim Corrier, the other announcer, responded with, let's not write him off. Let's enjoy Roger Federer while we still can because eventually time will catch him. I think he has another realistically two years before he starts to lose a little foot speed, but I think he has another eight majors where he can make hay. And if he stays in there long enough, maybe he gets another one. Aiden, what do you think about this quote here? I mean... I think it's an interesting quote because after 2012, Federer probably did lose a little bit of foot speed, but I think it's really cool that as his body kind of caught up with him and time caught up with him, he shifted his game so that he could deal with issues coming from age and still be such a great player. But there's also kind of an irony there in that he said, I think we could see him do well in the next couple of years. And then he actually went out and won the 2012 Wimbledon. So right. he, he won a Grand Slam literally. Yeah, no, I mean, he will go on to win four more slams, play 10 more years, a whole decade. And they were saying two more years. I mean, to me, it sounds like even though they said they weren't writing him off, it sounded like they were writing him off. But yeah, I mean, what do we really expect from a guy like Federer as their career winds down? Because like I said, some people are able to adapt their game as they age, like Federer can shift to just become more offensive. Well, a good example of that is I'm pretty sure Nadal really worked on his serve the older he got so that he can win more easy points on his serve. So doing things like that, and I know Djokovic, he's actually constantly improving his forehand, putting more topspin, generating more topspin, so... You know, these true champions, if they're not constantly adapting, then they're essentially falling behind. On the way up, you're only striving, like, all right, I want to get to the top. And then once you're at the top, you got to stay at the top. There is no time to rest. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, speaking on this idea of a decline, do you think it's better to have a slow decline? Let's see. So like a slow decline, you do risk a lot more criticism because yeah, you're not at the top of the game, but people expect so much from you. So they're really going to be focusing in on why you're not winning slams, why you're not doing well. You know, if you go out on top, you can remember it on a high note. You could kind of leave it with like people wanting more. So like Agassi, he had kind of a rapid decline because I mean, he made the, the US Open final in 2005, but then just like in 2006, injuries just killed him pretty much mm -hmm. and so in 2006 by the time he was ending his career he was not doing so well so i think also there's not just necessarily a rapid decline sometimes because sometimes people do go out at the top i mean obviously everybody knows mm -hmm. about bjorn borg retiring when he was like one of the top guys in the world and super young but the rapid decline i think is more agassi where it's like he was playing at such a high level and then all of a sudden just body lets him down and you're like that's it and he's just done do you remember agassi's last match 
I didn't watch it. I was five years old. Yeah. So I, it's one of those weird memories that I have. I'm pretty sure I was out. I was with my mom and it was emotional. Like to see a great champion like Andre Agassi play his last tennis match, man, that shit hurts. You know what I mean? And I think the way he did it, he did it right. Like there is no point in trying to get healthy, like keep coming back, keep trying to come back. I think, yeah, he just, you know, the injury finally took its toll, which I, I don't think it's a terrible way. Obviously, I wish players could play as long as they would like to but going out with an injury is at least giving it all you have yeah versus the slow decline i mean we're kind of seeing a little bit of it with someone like isner who just retired he just fell further and further away and you saw less and less results from him mm -hmm. and i think he actually gets a little bit of a break here because while we're talking about champions yes isner has won you know several titles but i don't think he is in that category of like true tennis champion like maybe andy murray or stan who actually have grand slams because people aren't expecting isner to defend grand slam titles right so his slow decline isn't being critiqued as much as say andy murray who to be honest i'm surprised he's even playing right now and stan like these guys man i wonder if they even go out on the court and expect to win these big tournaments anymore i don't think they expect to win the tournaments but they're still striving to win them and i still think they have belief in their game it's just they can't necessarily perform as well as they'd hope to but i think that's just any sport i think you're always going out there and having belief but not necessarily the you you know you're not the number one guy in the world so you know you're the underdog a little bit going into these matches what do you think about the isner take you're right to an extent because he's not a grand slam champion so he's not critiqued the same amount but i think probably not like this year but probably a couple of years ago people were kind of critiquing him a little bit but yeah i mean i think when you're a champion approaching retirement you're thinking about okay how do i want to go out i think an mm -hmm. average player isn't thinking about how am i going to go out until they really have to because they have that desperation to win but then there's interesting examples of players like vivrink and murray where they had that fall from being the top players but then they have stability they're stable right now at 40 50 in the world so they they kind of have that okay, we can kind of retire whenever we want and people are going to be sad to see us go, but it's not going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe you retired. Maybe you retire because your goal, your life purpose was to win a Grand Slam. And once you win it, you just kind of feel empty, right? I'm pretty sure Nick Kyrgios has said multiple times, if he wins a Grand Slam, he's retiring, he's done. I think he will have no problem retiring, hanging it up. Whereas someone like Zverev, I wonder if Zverev, if he wins a Grand Slam, because he's still playing top tennis, he's not going to be itching to retire, but I'm sure he could retire easily, like you said, you know, down the road. Yeah, no, I mean, you think about a guy like F1 driver Nico Rosberg, who retired in 2016 after he won the world championship. For some guys, they see that accomplishment and they're like, I just accomplished all my goals in this sport. I'm going to hang it up now because I don't have anything more that I'm going for. So it's just like that curios thing. For some people, it's not about necessarily just competing. It's about that accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And that's why we differentiated champion versus any other player, right? Because it's going to be different. Yeah, and speaking of guys that aren't playing anymore that are in that situation, kind of like a Kyrgios or like a Zverev or guys like Joe Wilford Sanga and David Ferrer, I mean, 
they played in Grand Slam finals. They were top 10 players. And they're kind of examples of that more normal decline. David Ferrer, I think, is maybe the best example of... He's maybe the, one of the best guys ever that never won a Grand Slam. And, I mean, he made 10 straight quarterfinals or further from 2012 to 2014. And he peaked when he made the 2013 French Open final. But after that, he made, like, the definition slow decline. Like, if you look at his Grand Slam results... It went from quarterfinals to like fourth round, third round, to second round, to first round exits. So he made that slow slow decline and retired. And it's like he was still, I'm sure, hungry as he got into the later later stages of his career. But he has to he realized, okay, I'm going to have to retire at some point. I'm probably not going to win these grand slams. Mm -hmm. And it's a sad feeling to see those guys go out because if the big three weren't there, he probably would have won a grand slam. But I think that's kind of the more normal decline you see from guys when they aren't the Grand Slam champions. You see them push and continue to push even when they know they're not necessarily going to win anymore. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. And I think tennis is interesting because, you know, you can choose to be on tour. You could sit out certain tournaments. You can essentially play when you want. So that also makes the whole like decline of the career an interesting thing too, because you can take time off and maybe take a break. If you see your career declining, hop back in and start doing better. And it, it is funny to see, you know, some people go up and down towards the end. Like it's kind of a last glimpse of hope. Yeah. And I think it's, that's that idea of the people, people when they realize they're going to retire, they're like, I'm going to give everything I have. I don't care if I get injured. It doesn't matter anymore. I'm just going to give everything because in a year's time, I'm not going to be playing anymore. Mm -hmm. So you asked me earlier which one I think I would prefer. And now that you're talking about Ferrer's career, I kind of like that slow decline. He could be satisfied with that. He has that closure of, okay, I left everything out there. There's that, but there's no... He can't lie to himself, you know yeah. what I mean? But yeah, I mean, another guy that had to deal with a similar thing kind of to Ferrer was Sanga. I mean, Sanga made 12 quarterfinals and semifinals from 2010 to 2016. So... He was such a consistently top 10 guy, but I mean, after that, he had to deal with a lot of injuries, missed a lot of tournaments and just made fewer and fewer runs and eventually retired in 2022. But even though he had to deal with the injuries, it was like he still had that period where he was at the top and then kind of started to decline and the decline was mixed almost with injuries. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like when you are a champion and you are in your decline of your career, for example, Sangha, the fans start to like you more. You know what I mean? They almost feel bad for you because I actually got to see Sangha at the Miami Open in 2022, like one of his last tournaments before he retired that year. And the whole crowd was for him. You know, he, he did lose, but people loved him. He loved the crowd. So I think, you know, it's just kind of a, a thing you have to embrace. Like there's no more hunger. Like you said, you're just kind of playing and people are happy to happy to watch you. They're happy to see you still there. They're not really expecting much from you, but you become a player's or a, a fan's player. I mean, there was a tournament that I was a ball boy at in my hometown, the Napa Challenger. And there was a guy that showed up there. And I remember I was I don't remember, 12, 13, something like that. But everyone was like, oh, my God, there's this guy here. And he played in the Australian Open final. And I'm like, what? Who is this guy? And it was Marcos Bagdadis. And Whoa. so he shows up here, and he's still, like, a fan favorite because of how good he was and how well he performed. 
Mm -hmm. and and yeah for some people like they maybe they never got to see Baghdadis in in the peak of his career but hey maybe you can catch him at a napa challenger and that way you can say okay i got to see Baghdadis play live in person exactly yeah so what do you think about people or players champions who want to do like make a last run retirement where it's like okay song is gonna retire in his home slam the french open like, do you think that's a great way to do it? I mean, I think definitely it is a cool way to do it. I mean, Isner just did it, and mm -hmm. I think it was a great way for him to go out. I mean, especially since he got a win and he had that feeling of, okay, that was maybe my last win, but it was at the U.S. Open. Goes into the next match, almost wins that one too against Michael Moe, but I think even when he lost, everyone was like, that was that was a good way for him to go out. And I think a lot of the guys that win a bunch of Grand Slams do that too. I mean, think about Sampras. Like, Sampras retired after the 2002 U.S. Open, and he won it. Yeah, I wonder if he wishes he would have come back. I mean, yeah, that's a tough question. I think it's kind of a storybook ending. Oh, I ended at the top. I won the U.S. Open, which is like one of the biggest Grand Slams. There's nothing more at that point I think he had to prove. Mm-hmm. But when you look back at it, you kind of have to think like, okay, I mean, he won 14, but how many could he have won a couple more? Yeah, I feel like it's it wasn't worth it for him to try to play two or three more years to get like one or two more slams. I mean, you think about like Agassi. I mean, Agassi won his last slam in what, 2003, 2002, and then played three more years and never won another one. Yeah. All right. Well, let me ask you this. This is, I have a question for you. So obviously there's great pressure with being a champion. You know, your career is basically under a microscope. Everyone's talking about you. You are way more likely to be scrutinized. Do you think when you're in that decline phase of your career that all that negative um, like scrutiny makes your career deteriorate faster because it takes a toll on you? Or do you think it may motivate you and try to reverse the decline? I think some guys, when they get put in that pressure cooker, they, they're just like, okay, I just need to grind even harder. And they're able to stop that decline and turn it around. Think of Federer. I mean, we talked yeah. about him earlier. Went four years after 2012, didn't win a major. Like Courier said, it looked like his time was passed after that. Like Courier called it maybe slightly too early, but after 2012, it looked like he was maybe done winning these tournaments. And then he took time off. I think he had a surgery and he came back in 2017. The Australian Open, he was ranked number 17. That was his seed in this tournament, 17. It was actually a cool final because Nadal, who he ended up playing in the final, was actually ranked nine. So it was a rare circumstance where it wasn't like one versus two in the final or one versus three or two versus three. It was a number 17 versus number yeah. nine. But... It is kind of weird because they were still obviously some of the favorites of the tournament. Right. But that is funny. He was able to completely change what he, how he was playing and make that step up, even though it looked like his career was going in the completely opposite direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, how about this? The decline phase. Do you think you can still win slams in the decline phase or does it not become the decline? phase anymore because you won the slam it depends how you define it i think you could say decline phase is when you are no longer expected to win a slam like you're kind of just in there like murray and Vavrinka. yeah but then so for for federer i mean would you mm -hmm. say that is his 
decline came in 2020 after that Wimbledon 2019. I mean, well, so he was my argument, two points away from winning Wimbledon uh-huh. in 2019. So you can't really say that he was in the decline there because he I was be- two points away from winning it. I think because it's Federer, people are so quick to say he is on the decline because he's not winning. You know, like he's held to such a high standard. I just think it's funny and pretty interesting that when players, when champions are on the decline, they're almost vulnerable and other players can, you know, smell blood and really take a chance to actually beat them. And what comes to mind is when Hercotch beat Federer in the Wimbledon quarterfinals in 2021. I wonder what it feels like to play against a champion like Federer, but he's in the decline. You know, a player like Hercatch, not to discount him, he's a phenomenal player, can say that he beat Roger Federer, where players like David Ferrer, James Blake, Marty Fish, Baghdadis, guys who, you know, in their peak or in Federer's peak had to face him can't say that they've ever beat him. I think that's definitely an interesting point. I mean, you look at these guys and you're like, they lose so infrequently that if you beat them, it's like a career accomplishment. Yeah, for sure. But I think it's also interesting because sometimes you get guys like, like Alcaraz lost earlier this year to Marojan. And that guy can hold that for his entire career. Like I beat Alcaraz in the same year he won Wimbledon. Yeah. I guess you can also kind of use that same argument and phrase it for players on like on their come up. So a player mm. could, could have beat Alcaraz two years ago when he was ranked, I don't know, 100 in the world. And then look. 10 years later, the guy can tell his kids, yeah, you know, I beat Carlos Alcaraz, 10-time Grand Slam champion. You don't have to say when you beat him, but you could say you beat him. Yeah, I mean, think about Gimmelstab. Like, Gimmelstab played Andy Murray. Remember that? He was like, yeah, I beat Andy Murray. Yeah, he wasn't quite the Andy Murray of, like, 2015, 2016, but he did He did beat him. Yeah, so let's get into Bork. He had an interesting retirement, his decline. I think that John McEnroe essentially forced his retirement. Like we were talking about pressure earlier as a champion. He didn't want to be, you know, the guy who John McEnroe would dethrone. He didn't want to give him that satisfaction of John McEnroe just beating him like over and over and over again. I think he wanted to take things into his own hands and just end his career on his own terms. What do you think? Maybe. I mean, Borg couldn't get it done really at the U.S. Open, but other than that, like he was pretty dominant at Wimbledon in the French. So maybe, maybe he just didn't like McEnroe. I mean, they seem to have a pretty cordial relationship now. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's tough to say. I, I don't know how their relationship was really because obviously their personas are so different. But saying that McEnroe forced Borg's retirement, it's tough to say just because we don't have all that information. Mm-hmm. No, exactly, and I know. Borg had his own demons too. Yeah, I just felt bad for him at the time because yeah, his retirement wasn't all, you know, chilling on the beach in Florida type retirement. He was so young that he still had a whole nother life to live and certain things, certain business ventures didn't work out for him. Tried to make a couple comebacks, but uh, it seems like he has it figured out now. Yeah. I mean, it makes me kind of think about Djokovic's retirement. There's a level of like Djokovic still could play for like four more years because of how advanced all these techniques are of like keeping care of your body and stuff like that. I think he's going to be one of those guys that retires at the top. I think what his retirement's going to look like is he's going to start getting beat by Alcaraz and he's not going to be able to, you know, put up much of a fight and he's going to get to the point where he goes, he tells himself, all right, I'm going to win one more grand slam and then I'm retiring. 
He'll win that Grand Slam, and then I think he's going to win or retire right after a Slam win. I think that's a very, very slippery slope in terms <laughs> of retirement plan. Because once you start getting beaten by someone like consistently, and then you're like, okay, I just need one more. Mm-hmm. That's when you start to push it too far. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then he's like, all right, one more. Because he's still it's like, oh, I think I can do it. Uh-huh. But then he loses that one. He's like, but I can maybe do it at the next one. Yeah. And then he pushes on for like two more years and he doesn't win any. And he's like, I should have retired two years ago. Yeah. yeah well, let's just say we're not going to see him on the challenger tour. Like Andy Murray. That's true. I don't think he's going to, I don't think he's ever going to play in any challengers in the rest of his career. Uh-uh. And he's not going to give people the satisfaction of really cheering for him when he loses. Cause I feel like he doesn't like that. He's what not that mean? type like a pity. Like when Sangha lost, like the whole crowd kind of, went nuts for him and he stayed on the court for way longer than he should have. Like on another note, why do they rush people out after they lose? Have you noticed that? It's pretty funny, but I think it's probably just because people don't like losing. And so it's like, (laughs) they want to be able to be alone with themselves and maybe with their coach or someone and deal with it on their own rather than having like an entire crowd (laughs) of people just staring at them. Like, I wonder if this guy's going to cry or not. Yeah. Cause it's amazing to me that these guys in a slam will play like four hour matches and just be dead tired, but still pack their stuff and just get out. You know, I think it's a respect thing. Yeah, also, because yeah. like the winner, they play a four hour match and then the winner gets to go out and appreciate the crowd mm-hmm. and say like, thank you and have that little interview and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, well, exactly. The point I'm trying to make here is that so- I don't think Djokovic, when he loses, will be one of those guys to like sit there and take in all the the pity cheers for him. I think I he's think going- maybe in his last match, but not. Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. in Not when he's on his decline, whenever that happens. Uh-huh. I think he's going to continue to be like. I lost, maybe give like a little wave and just walk off the court. Yeah, because he's still got that little bit of villain in him, you know, that <laughs> antagonist. <laughs> yeah. Where just he's, like, a, he's just got the chip bit. on the shoulder. Just he goes, a little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you watching, Aiden just did the hang up the phone, Sally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You ready to hop into segments? Yeah, let's do it. All righty. What's new in tennis? What What did you see this week? Yeah, this was pretty exciting news for me. I came across an article, uh, Holger Runa's injury woes, and he said, I am too young to have these kind of problems. And that was from Tennis365. I feel like this is good because it ties into our episode here about declines of champions. You know, Runa just snapped his four-game losing streak in Beijing against FAA. He is happy. He's back. He's feeling good. He actually hadn't had a tour-level win since Wimbledon, and he hasn't been on tour since the U.S. Open. Uh, he's fighting a back problem, and I'm glad that Rune is back because we do give him a lot of hate for his eccentric personality, but I really missed him on tour. I enjoy watching him play, so to see him back, I think um, it brings more excitement and energy to the sport. You know, he did lose to Dimitrov today, which I'm kind of surprised about, but hopefully we start seeing him more in the mix, like playing against Alcaraz and some of the younger guys, Sinner, and get more rivalry matches there. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe that just shows, like that loss that Dimitrov shows he's not really fully back mm-hmm. because I think Dimitrov is a guy that you would expect Runa to beat and FAA is maybe maybe not <laughs> the FAA of last year. Uh-huh. So I think that match win is a little bit less impressive, but mm-hmm. I mean, steps. it's, still good, to, it's yeah. still good to get a win. 
Yeah, definitely. Especially after being injured and, you know, having a dispute with your coach and everything. He he went through a lot in the last yeah. couple months. But also, I think I think speaking on what he's he's saying about I'm too young to have these kinds of problems, mm-hmm. it's kind of reminds me of what Nick Kyrgios has said about his life. Like he's like, oh, I'm 28, but I feel like I'm 45 with <laughs> how my body feels. And it kind of is interesting because I think you're starting to see a little bit more of a like a dichotomy between there's two types of players where one player is like Djokovic who's just so locked in on everything in their body. They're like never injured. They're never sick. They're never any of these things. And they're always in like pretty much perfect condition. And then maybe you're going to see guys that are just getting injured. And maybe it's because they're not taking great care of their body. Maybe it's just Mm -hmm. unlucky. But interesting that you can see uh, Djokovic playing at such a high level and being so healthy and younger guys having to deal with these injury problems. Yeah, no, definitely. So uh, what did you see out there? Uh, I saw an article that ranked the top five guys they said that have yet to win an ATP title. And the way I read it was like, here are the guys they expect, the top five guys they kind of expect to win an ATP title like in the near future. And so I had some guys like Davidovich Vakina, Yuri Leheka, Struff, and Jack Draper who were one, two, four, and five. And I was like, yeah, honestly, if I saw any of those guys win like an ATP 250 tournament, I wouldn't be that shocked. I'd be like, okay, yeah, he got his he got his tournament win. For me though, they put Ben Shelton at three. And to be honest, I kind of disagree with that because Ben Shelton has played excellently on the be- the biggest stages. But what worries me is the consistency. I think he will win a tournament in the future. I mean, obviously he's 20. I think he's going to win multiple tournaments. But right now, like from now through like the next six months, I would be kind of pretty surprised if I if he won any like ATP uh, tour level tournament. Mm-hmm. If he played in like a challenger, I'd be like, yeah, 100% he wins it. But... Not 100%, but I would expect him to win it. <laughs> yeah. But if he plays an ATP Tour level tournament, I kind of think he needs a little bit more development and maturity before he he wins one of those. Yeah, that well, that's a great point you bring up because these rankings, are, you, are they ranking them based on just raw talent or, like you said, consistency? Like, does being a top five guy, whatever they're using to measure you, are you a good player because you're consistent or are you just a good player because you have the capability, the ability to be a good player? So it'll be interesting how that plays out. I mean, I agree with you. I don't know about three. Yeah. I think it is funny too, though, because it's, it's interesting how tennis rankings work because obviously it's based on like match wins, but mm-hmm. it's not based on just winning tournaments which obviously that wouldn't work as a ranking system. I'm not saying this is a bad system, but I just think it's funny that like you can be a top 20 player in the world without ever winning a tournament on the tour level. Yeah. Yeah. That is funny. All right. Bet of the week. Who are you taking? I'm going to take uh Offner plus 150 over Manorino. Offner. I mean, he's been playing pretty well this tournament. He's beaten some big guys. He beat Fucevic, Bublik and team. And he's pretty close to like a career high ranking. So I think it just shows he's playing at a really good level. And I think that these wins show that 
he can pretty much pretty much beat anybody in this tournament. The only thing is that Manorino is just a a crafty guy. He always has that possibility of a win. So I think it could go either way, either way but with Offner as the underdog and with how well he's been playing, I'm I'm taking him. Yeah, I like that. Manorino, he's he's a little tricky, but for my bet of the week, I was going back and forth on this. So I really wanted to take Jari over Zverev, but I ended up doing uh, Jari Zverev over two and a half sets for plus 150. Um, just, you know, my take is that Jari's going to come out hot. He's going to serve big. He's going to come to the net, finish points. And um, Zverev is going to get a little frustrated in the first set, but, you know, come back, adjust, win the second set. And third set will be a decider. I, I think it goes the distance. I'm hoping Jari does pull it out, but definitely think the two and a half sets is a pretty good bet for plus 150 i think that's a cool take i think i mean i wonder if you could maybe even uh, have gone for the extreme underdog jari takes the first set zverev takes the second set parlay yeah i know i was actually thinking about this i was going back and forth on this I was like, oh, what do i want to do but that'd be that'd be a crazy bet because i'm sure you'd get pretty pretty nuts odds to pick yeah oh both sets I know, but we're going for locks. Yeah. I'm confident in this one. Um, what about match of the week? What uh what'd you go for there? Yeah, well, speaking of Jari, Jari's clutch comeback win against Arnaldi. This was an absolute roller coaster match. Yeah. Jari was up four one in the first set, ended up losing seven six in the tiebreaker. Then he went down love forty in the second set, saved three match points, forced that set to a breaker won the set and then took the third set six three Jeez. and i love watching jari because like i said he's got that big serve had 12 aces in the match and just heavy ground strokes that he can come up to the net and finish points love him love that yeah. match did you see it i mean i saw the highlights of it but i mean dude coming back from love 40 and mm. it's a match point that's got to feel so bad for Arnaldi. <laughs> I know, I know. He thought he had it, I'm sure. Imagine being yeah. up 40 love. Yeah. Jeez. All right, what about you? I mean, speaking of, of speaking of saving match points, my match of the week is uh, Deminar coming back to beat Murray, 6-3, 5-7, And like I, like I was saying with Arnaldi, like even though I'm, I'm a really big fan of Deminar, this was a tough one because, like, I like Murray too. I, I – it was an exciting match for me because I like both guys and I was excited to see it. But Murray had two match points at five, two in the third. And then he had another one in the tie break and he just, just couldn't convert. And oh. I think it's an interesting one because match points against Deminar are so not necessarily unique, but I just think it's, it's so tough to beat Deminar on a match point because He's one of those guys that is going to force you to beat him, I feel like. Especially on a match point, he's not going to miss those shots, or very rarely. And he's going to make you go, go for an aggressive winner or force an error. He's not just going to put out an unforced error. Yeah. Oh, he is scrappy. I, I can't imagine playing him. He just seems so annoying to play against because you think you have a nice winner. He gets it, and then you like put away another winner. He gets it. So like you said, you really have to beat him. He's gonna he's, he's gonna get everything back. Exactly. All right, and that's the show. If you're not already subscribed, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube at Painting Lines Podcast. 
feel free to shoot us a DM or email us any questions or thoughts at paintinglinespodcast at gmail.com.